Hey, Ralph. Hey, man. Thanks for joining me. All right. We're in the recital hall at Steinway Hall. A nice little venue. Okay. Something you might let's, consider. Let's, let's check the acoustics. Yep. Right. All right. There we go. Beautiful. What do you call that piece? Light warm-up. Light warm-up. All right. It's got possibilities. Welcome to Soundboard, the Steinway and Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. I'm your producer and host, Ben Finan, editor-in-chief at Steinway and Sons and for the online music magazine, listenmusicculture.com. My guest today is jazz trumpeter and composer Ralph Alessi, who is the founder and director of the School for Improvisational Music and an ECM recording artist. Alessi spoke to me at Steinway Hall in New York City. Ralph, you are a jazz cat. All right. From San Francisco. All right. I was also born in San Francisco. All right. You've probably told me that before, but... So right. I think that's why we have that, that mellow vibe together. Yes, but yes. you hail from classical music brass royalty. Mm-hmm. Your family mm-hmm. is fused with brass classical mm-hmm. musicians. Mm-hmm. Tell me about them and, and about that coming out of that environment, mm-hmm. that classically rich brass environment. Mm-hmm. Well, yes, there was pretty much no doubt when I was young that I was going to uh, follow suit and be a trumpet player. Uh, I, I never... I never doubted it. I didn't know the history of it. I, I, my, my father was a trumpet player, uh, but I didn't know that his father was a trumpet player. And it might even go a generation before that. Yeah, there was an inevitability to it. My father was a great classical player and a uh, renowned teacher as well. And I studied with him for about 10 years. And my brother was already playing the trombone. He's principal trombonist of the New York Philharmonic. It was certainly a Brass City. Uh, growing up, it was lots of loud practicing <laughs> from several brass players. And in addition, my mo- mother was an opera singer. We had a dog barking all the time, so it was uh, not not the most peaceful environment, mm-hmm. I would say. But it was still wonderful. Did you start off being classically trained before you ventured into jazz? Yeah, I think that was almost a given that I was going to go down this route. Um, but for some reason, my dad felt like he wanted me to take lessons with one of his students who was a kind of a Clifford Brown aficionado. And uh, I never questioned him. I mean, my, my dad was definitely in charge of my life. It was, it's not like nowadays where you consult with your, your kids and you work something out. It's basically, basically just did these things unilaterally. And, <laughs> and, he, and he said, okay, you're going to have a lesson with this uh, student of mine. Uh, okay. Whatever you say, dad. Okay. You know, and then, uh, that sort of got me down the path of jazz, or at least me putting some labels to it. So, and then, and then from that point, I, I went forward. If the New York Phil called you tomorrow and was like, "Okay, our our principal trumpet has hoof and mouth. Can you can you step in on Mahler five? Do you think you could? I can. Could you deliver that? I can do that, but I would totally embarrass myself. So, yes, the que- the answer is yes. Yeah. I could do it. It would be an absolutely miserable experience. But you know, uh, yeah, that's that's a, it's a different ball game. Okay. I, I have the utmost respect for those people that can go out there and deliver the goods night after night. I do okay, I suppose. Maybe not as bad as uh, I would think. 
so let's get into your jazz language. I've been chain smoking a lot of your records prior to this interview. I like the pristine beauty that you seem to seek out in your music. Really elegant craftsmanship. What has gone into that mix? How did your idiom develop? And if you had to, if you had to speculate, what's inside there? Uh, different influences. I would say, I mean, we were talking about the classical influence, and there's no denying the fact that, that that was my bread and butter growing up, and that's a big part of what I do. On the other hand, I, I'm also very aware that that's not enough in this music. You have to bring other ideas and make sure that you're making music that's expressive, that is coming from the classical world. But as I got older, as I kind of broke free from that, those uh, upbringings, I realize that there are certain ways of expressing music in this music that is fundamentally different than what happens in uh, Western classical training. You know, the way, the, way, the way you're supposed to think about music, it's, it's a little bit in a box. And I was stuck in that for a little while. And then as I got older, I realized, oh boy, all those sounds that I felt were wrong were actually completely spot on in a way of making music that is that hits me that's always kind of hit me but i always doubted it you know when, what were those when, wrong sounds specifically like well like textured and or, texture yeah yeah and expression and it has to do with intonation and all these types of things and i was hearing it through the prism of if you're not playing a note that's 440 it's out of tune uh-huh. you know i i had that bias for a long time but then I would, it would be coupled with me, me thinking, yeah, I know it's out of tune. I'm, I, I know that in some ways it doesn't sound good, but in another way, there's part of me that's moved by this. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember having a student years ago, and I introduced him to uh, Andrew Hill, great pianist, composer, and I introduced him to his music for a reason, because his music was a little too clean, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and then after a few weeks, I, he'd been listening to his music. I said, hey, what, what do you think of... What do you think, Andrew Hill? And he said, yeah, it's kind of interesting. It's messy. But, you know, so so I can totally relate to that. It's a different ball game. It's a different ball game. You know, it's more about relationships of sounds to things rather than matching up perfectly with a, a bullseye, you know, intonation and rhythm and all that. The music that I was drawn to over time what had to do more with these interesting relationships um, and, and how the sounds were, were being made.
let's get into some of those influences. If you could name me a couple dead trumpet players and living trumpet players mm. that people should go check out, mm. who would you recommend for mm. someone unfamiliar with the, the landscape? Well, I mentioned Clifford Brown. That's a great place to start. But, you know, I started there. And, and, and as I got older, I realized that it was time for me to go back before that. So uh, Louis Armstrong, of course, Cootie Williams, Rex Stewart, all those trumpet players that were in the Ellington Orchestra. It took me a little bit because I, like I said, I started more with the 50s and I wasn't dealing with the players from before then. But I really, really love those early 20th century uh, players. But going forward, oh my gosh, I mean, I know you just wanted a couple. It's impossible to stop at just two or three, but... You know, Lee Morgan, and of course, Freddie Hubbard. Freddie Hubbard really was my guy, mm. and still, you know. Red just, Clay. Oh, on, you know, on and on. I mean, he he completely owned the 60s in terms of just jazz trumpet playing, you know, in, in so many ways. But um, but uh, Booker Little, uh, Fats Navarro. Um, and as I got older, quote-unquote free players were the ones that really, really uh, – Hit me, Don Cherry and uh, Wadada Leo Smith. And did that shake up your matrix as far as here are some new possibilities? Totally, yeah. And that and that and and that was a big change for me because those players, when I was younger, I could not hear what they were doing, and and that's that's putting it nicely. I mean, yeah. I just heard it as 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 being wrong. At some point, I did a one eighty. Though I cannot get enough of those two players and and. Uh, Ikeda Carroll and, you know, Lester Bowie. I can keep going on. But living players, you know, I mean, I love uh, Ambrose, Akimitsura's uh, music and playing. Uh, beautiful, beautiful player. I tend to be attracted to the players that sound, they sound uh, old school to me. What does an old school sound? How do we quantify that? I think, I think they're influenced. They know their history. And I, I don't mean to put it that way. I, I don't think you need to be able to take a test. I think it's just an influence uh, reverence for those ways of making music. It's different. It was very, very different back then. It was very, it was more vocal in their in their influences. Mm. And so far as imitating the human voice, maybe consciously, definitely subconsciously. But I, I think that that was definitely in play, and and their sounds to me mm-hmm. were more expressive. Maybe so, a little more through composed too. Like when you mentioned Clifford Brown. I think of those really taut tracks with Clifford Brown and Max Roach and mm-hmm. everything. It, it doesn't feel so improvised. Uh, right, it, right. It I know what you mean. Well, um, uh, improvisation is a big, big umbrella. So, mm-hmm. you know, um, back in those days, it wasn't as spontaneous, let's say. Uh, that's not me criticizing that at all. You know, it was just a different kind of idea of it. It's interesting. I mean, Clifford Brown, yeah, was very precise with what he, with how he played. 
but his mentor, Fast Navarro, uh, his playing was uh, looser and, and it felt more improvised, mm. you know, apples and oranges, you know, newer players. Yeah. Jonathan Finlayson, Shane Ensley, so many great players. I mean, this is a time right now and, and people have said it to me and I, I agree with it that in all the instrumental categories, they're, they're just an endless list of, of wonderful players, but especially on the trumpet. It's good to know that that torch is burning bright and being passed forward. Yeah, and for me, you know, moving back to New York full time now, it's great because this is what makes New York unique. You're constantly surrounded by people who inspire you on your instrument and can do things you can't do. And, and it's so important regarding growth to be in that environment. Take me through the process of developing, writing, composing, working on a tune as far as approach and, and preparation and process. How, how does that work? For well, you? process is the, is, is the key word, and I, I adhere to that maybe more so than, than other people. It, and what I mean is that I, I don't really have a methodology to, to how I write. So I need to wrestle with it however I'm going to wrestle with it, you know, just to, to get to a point where the piece is played. You know, there's a, there's a lot that goes into it, it, it in addition to just putting it on paper. A big part of it really is having humans play the music. A lot it of doesn't th- exist. You can write it down, but until right. you hear it. Right, and it's improvised music, so okay. it's, it's, it, uh, there's so many variables, interpretation and how improvisation fits into the composition. And sometimes I have a pretty clear idea as to how that's all going to work, but a lot of times I'm not sure, and I need to play it with musicians. And, you know, from musician to musician, you're going to get different results. So, there are, yeah, there are pieces of mine that I've kind of worked on for years. Part of it is my being a little scattered and having kind of ADD, you know, with the way I work, but that's just the way I work, you know, mm-hmm. so I'll have little things that... Some scrap paper. Yeah, scrap paper, but, you know, in the in the, the, the uh, digital world, you know, like I have just hundreds and hundreds of files of pieces that I work on uh, on my computer, and uh, it's a process. And, are these and audio files, or are you notating? Notating, yeah, okay. d- digital notation. I actually don't use uh, pencil and paper uh, at, pretty much at all, which... Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily recommend that uh, to students, you know, but, you know, I have perfect pitch, so it's doable for me to to be on a train and to okay. hear the music on a certain level. And it is advantage, and an advantage to listen to play, a playback, even though with, with these crude sounds, it's, you still have a general idea as to what you're dealing with. You're ready whenever inspiration strikes. There's not some sort of controlled, it's time to write environment with a, a piano under your fingers or a, or a horn in your mouth. A lot of it really is, or I have a gig coming up or a recording coming up, and it's time, time to get busy. Yeah. You know, Nothing so. like deadlines. I know, I, I would, know. I wouldn't have done anything if I didn't have a deadline. I know. Yeah. It's a, a romanticize about uh, yeah. you know, a, a, the, the idea of when people go to artist colonies and all that. And like Michael Foreman, yeah. I wrote this incredible big band music, and he, he wrote it in uh, two weeks. He went somewhere and wrote the music. That's the way you're supposed to do yeah. it, you know. So well, I asked a chair. Yes, exactly, yeah. <laughs> Get away from the devices and all the distractions. Yeah, maybe someday I'll do that.
Does this process change when you're a leader and when you're a sideman? Uh, what's, what's the difference in how you approach those roles? Uh, being a ladder leader as opposed to a sideman? Yeah. Um, well, they mirror each other in a lot of ways. Um, I'm definitely aware of what it feels like to be a sideman, and I can hopefully have some empathy <laughs> towards the sideman. When I'm a leader, I try to make people comfortable. I guess I'll start with being a leader. I mean, I, I really enjoy being a leader. I like making the decisions mm. in terms of what we're going to play and all those types of things. But it's also a totally collaborative process of making the music. So I'm. it's pretty democratic. I want it to be that way. Yes, I'm making decisions, but I'm I'm not strong-arming the music at all. And again, as I was just saying, I don't like the way that feels when I'm a <laughs> sideman. I like that the music is being made on the spot in different ways and that there isn't a clear idea as to what we're supposed to do or what we're not supposed to do. A little direction's okay. So I try to give that to the musicians in my band, but very, very uh, little is said. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I really would like things to evolve the way they're going to they're going to happen. So, in order for them to evolve that way and this takes us to improvisation. You have to be on the same wavelength as the other players and you have to allow for flexibility as you've just mentioned. You are the director of the School for Improvisational Music, which teaches musicians of all levels to improvise. What is your philosophy or uh, that school's philosophy behind teaching improvisation? Kind of simplifying how that works uh, and really paring it down to being in in a room, playing music, playing music for each other, talking about it, listening to music, and really de-emphasizing the rules and trying to get people out of their head. That's a big part of being a teacher. You mean like a be here now? Yes, yes. Be reactive? Somehow quiet the mind. I mean, there's two parts to playing. There's the practicing and then there's the doing it. So when you're doing it, you can't wish that you knew something better. You can't wish <laughs> that you were better instrumentalists or whatever. You work with what you have right then. And uh, I think that's really a big part of it. And it's such a cliche and people hear it so many times to be in the present and uh, in the moment and all those kind of, kind of things. But it's another thing to, to actually get to that. Yes, it can be elusive, but um, we're just trying to get people to play together and play the music as it's happening and to bring ideas and nurture the music, you know, and and to really try to start with a clean slate every time you play and just be there and and try to check your agenda at the door and and make music in that way and and also kind of try, try to steer clear of the labels of what you think it's supposed to be uh, of, of is this jazz or whatever, and just make the best music you can. It's really about that word again, process. And maybe it's a little, it's a little more in the direction of spontaneous composition, which I think jazz has always been about that, but I think it's moved more in that direction because of the great artists that have open doors for, for what's possible in, in jazz, whether you're talking about Miles Davis's uh, 60s group where they were taking these standards and, and were really doing amazing things compositionally with these compositions, you know, recomposing and making incredible music out of those, uh, those standard tunes. There's been a lot of those 
types of musicians. So I think that there are a lot of ways that they're, they're, they're kind of the inspiration for this way of improvising. I would say Sonny Rollins also would to- totally be in that uh, realm. Wayne Shorter. Jazz is part of what we do, but we try to talk about ideas that are relevant in all idioms of improvisation. late 20th century and the early 21st century was replaced as the popular African-American art form by hip-hop. What's the role of jazz now? You've said some interesting things about how I don't want to call things jazz or mm-hmm. classical or this. Mm-hmm. It seems clear to me that you're, you're porous with your, mm-hmm. your boundaries. Mm-hmm. Where is jazz in the 21st century? That's well, a big question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What I want to say, I just want to be clear, I'm actually very proud to use that word jazz because to me it's the it's the jumping off point, you know, for so much amazing music and it is it is all about evolution, you know. I know there's there are people that don't necessarily think that way, but 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 I do and the collective of musicians that I'm a part of, I'm so fortunate to be a part of a lot of them don't play jazz, what you wouldn't necessarily call it jazz, but that was where it started for them. They have a big part of that music in them. And it, if you have that foundation and you're creative-minded, you can make new music, this idea with you know that, that involves improvisation. So I wanted to say that because that, to me, is very important. I mean, that that's a question that comes up, you know, are you a jazz musician or mm-hmm. whatever? So I would proudly say yes. But... Where is the music at now? Where is it going? Yeah. Um, it's interesting. There's, there's definitely um, a fork in the road. And uh, there, there are, you know, people that are still playing the music with a certain awareness and reverence for the past. And there are, uh, there's a whole other stream where people really are going forward with something that doesn't have a whole lot to do with that. And that's where it gets it gets interesting, and that has that says nothing about the quality of the music. It's just it's just an interesting point. Me, me as a musician and as a teacher in particular, you know, I, I wrestle with that. You know, whether or not I should continue to direct people to um, to the music that happened, uh, you know, in the twentieth century. But I think you know, I think the music is as relevant as relevant as ever, and especially with the state of the world right now. I think you know. We need music, and there is something very unique about this music when it's made in a particular way. 
I know that's not saying anything specific, but uh, I love uh, one of the great musicians, my biggest inspiration is Henry Threadgill. He said this at a sim workshop. He said that music is made in a, in a magical atmosphere. And that speaks volumes to me. I think when music is made in that way, where people are and all those cliches come in, they're fully present and, you know, have quieted their minds and are taking chances. And, and when music is made that way, it's powerful. And it's not just jazz, not just jazz. It's music, as he said. Last night, I, I finally saw that Keith Richards documentary. You know, again, like he's an old school musician. This is the music that I'll keep coming back to. And, he, and he's a street musician. I mean, the, the musicians that I tend to like, they learned it just by playing. And, and Street musician, you mean sort of art without formal training? Yeah, you know, but learning by doing more than anything, more than anything. So watching that documentary, I mean, every move he made as as a musician, I mean, he does with love and ease, really. I mean, he is he's a great musician, you know, so they would do these things off the cuff in the studio and say, hey, let's try this, let's try this. And very fluid. Know. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's what I mean. Like, I am a jazz musician. But see, back in the day. That was a time when people were influenced by the blues and jazz. So that's the difference now. The difference now is that it's, yeah, it's become a lot more compartmentalized, but not, not so much in my environment. You know, the musicians that I play with, we're all dipping into different types of music and, you know, going back a lot, but also being aware of what's happening but now. But popularly, it's not part of the through line that it used to no, be. No, not by any stretch. Not by any stretch. But, you know, it's a, it's a completely different paradigm now, you know. So, so it's all about underground music, you know, in so many ways. You, know. you mentioned before, you can't be improvising and say, oh, I wish I had worked on this and that. Mm-hmm. When you practice now, is it the same ritual as when you practiced, say, 10, 20 years ago? Has your practice and practicing evolved as a musician? Well, evolved and devolved. <laughs> but, but I would say that, you know, I used to practice things that didn't allow me to really grow as an improviser. So I used to practice as a classical player. I would, I would put 95% of my practicing into trumpet-oriented things. And at the Arpeggios, very scales. Oh yeah, all the technical things, but also classical etudes and all that kind of stuff. And of course, you know that that was good for me and uh, shaped me as a player. And at the very end of the practicing, you know, I'd play through a blues for a few courses and call it a day. You know, that was that was a while back. And now I've kind of done a one eighty from that. You know, and as my mechanics got better as a player, now I ha- I spend less time on the trumpet stuff. And I would say. The majority of the time I am practicing, I am improvising or working on pieces that I have to play on gigs or working on concepts. Mm -hmm. Uh, But a lot of it, the the go-to move when in doubt is to improvise. So I try to exercise that muscle as much as possible in my practicing. So I think I have figured out some things. It's not structured in, in, in the way maybe I'd like it to be, but I don't mind it. It seems to be working for me. But yeah, it is fundamentally changed. But is it also that you've reached a certain level of technical proficiency that allows you to focus on interpretation rather than rather than stumbling over technique? Does that become more 
second nature and, and you're more fluent in your instrument now than when you started, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and I've figured out some things about the, the mechanics of playing a brass instrument too, breathing and armbrasure and all those types of things. And there are times when I do like to work on technique, but I think that now I try to work on the technique as I'm improvising, if that makes any sense. If I'm improvising and I'm trying a certain thing that requires technique, I might just slow it down and work on just the movements that'll make that possible. It's partly that, yes, but it's also a belief that if you're going to get better as an improviser, you have to do it a lot. So I, I tell students that it's a, it's a slippery slope, especially when I'm teaching. You, know. you have to have both abilities. Yeah. When I was younger, that was a, a, a very kind of vexing uh, proposition, which is how, how much should I work on my instrument? How much should I work on improvisation? I don't know. I still believe that you can be efficient with the mechanics and the mechanical things and, and the nuts and bolts and all that, but really spend a hefty amount of time of just going through the experience of improvising. And I know at any given moment, I could just say, you know what, the rest of my life, I'm not going to work on any more technique. I'm just going to play standards and pieces that have improvisation and free improvisation. That's all I'm going to do. And part of me wants to come and kind of commit to that. So maybe one day I will do that. Ralph, thanks for talking to me today. Thank really you, appreciate Ben. It. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Soundboard, the Steinway & Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. We heard the opening of Mahler's Symphony No. 5, performed by the Leonard Bernstein-led Vienna Philharmonic on Deutsche Grammophon. We heard the opening of Dahoud from the album Clifford Brown and Max Roach on Imarsi. And we heard clips from Iram Isela, Oxide, and Improper Authorities off of Ralph Alessi's album Imaginary Friends on ECM. Our intro and outro music is Philip Glass's Mad Rush, performed on a Steinway Model M by me, Ben Finan. Editor-in-Chief at listenmusicculture.com. Questions for the podcast can be sent to info at steinway.com with the subject heading Soundboard. Thank you for listening. <laughs>